Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer Radio Show, brought to you by Calm Bach Feeds. My name is Andy Schneider, but most know me as the Chicken Whisperer, author of The Chicken Whisperer's Guide to Keeping Chickens, national spokesperson for the USDA Biosecurity for Birds program, and editor-in-chief of Chicken Whisperer magazine. Each week, I welcome experts in their field to share their knowledge about different topics, including backyard poultry, show poultry, heritage poultry, gardening, cooking, and, of course, living a self-sufficient lifestyle. Be sure to visit us online at chickenwhisperer.com, where you can follow us on Twitter, become a fan on Facebook, and subscribe to the totally free digital edition of Chicken Whisperer magazine. Once again, I would like to thank all of you for tuning in today to Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer, brought to you by Kalmbach Feeds. At Kalmbach Feeds, our layer pellets and crumbles are all natural, antibiotic-free, with no animal byproducts. Formulated just for laying hens, our feed is fortified with essential amino acids and calcium to ensure maximum production of nutritious, tasty, strong-shelled eggs. From our family to yours, feed your hens the way nature intended. Pure, wholesome, goodness. Kalmbach Feeds. Find a dealer at kalmbachfeeds.com. That's K-A-L-M-B-A-C-H, feeds.com. Or order your layer pellets and crumples today on amazon.com. Kalmbach Feeds is a proud sponsor of the Chicken Whisperer. When you need an incubator, think Brincy, the incubation specialists. Brincy has been a world-leading manufacturer of quality incubators for almost 40 years. They manufacture incubators that hold anywhere from 7 to 380 eggs with high-quality electronic and digital controls, including precise humidity controls and programmable egg turning, all at surprisingly affordable prices. Enter the coupon code WHISPER at checkout and receive 10% off your entire order. Order your new incubator today at Brincy.com. That's B-R-I-N-S-E-A.com. Cackle Hatchery is a third-generation, family-owned and operated hatchery. They offer over 193 varieties of poultry shipped directly from their facility in Missouri. It's their mission to enhance your life by providing you with quality poultry for showing, meat, enjoyment, eggs, and pets. They specialize in hatching purebred poultry and shipping day-old chicks right to your local post office since 1936. 4-H and FFA Youth Poultry Clubs get a 10% discount. Check out their website 
CackleHatchery.com for posted weekly specials and discounts. That's CackleHatchery.com. Want to protect your hens from the damage caused by an overly affectionate rooster? Nothing protects hens better than the Hen Saver Hen Apron. Hen Saver Hen Aprons come in several different sizes to fit both bantam and large fowl hens. They also come in several different styles and colors. Give your hens the protection they deserve by purchasing Hen Saver Hen Aprons today. 100% of all proceeds goes to provide care to rescued animals at Crazy K Farm in Hempstead, Texas. Purchase your Hen Saver Hen Aprons at hensaver.com. That's hensaver.com. The Yard Bird Chicken Plucker takes the hassle out of backyard chicken processing by fully defeathering birds in less than 15 seconds. The compact size makes it easy to transport and easy to store. The one and a half horsepower motor and 20 inch stainless steel tub can handle two eight pound birds at the same time. There are no belts or pulleys to wear out and no adjustments necessary, which makes it virtually maintenance free. For more information about how you can own this must have chicken processing product, visit YardBirdChickenPluckers.com today. That's YardBirdChickenPluckers.com. How would you like a punch in the beak? And the mighty bird against prejudice continues his fight for law and order. So when you hear that cry in the sky, you'll know it's Super Chicken. Hi, I'm country music artist Nathan Osmond, and you're listening to Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer. All righty, thank you very much for staying with us today on Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer, brought to you by Kalmbach Feeds. Um, we are right, uh, I guess, in the beginning week of the 2016 Chicken Whisperer Spring Tour, sponsored by Kalmbach Feeds. Tonight is my fourth event, and we have just kind of landed in... Uh, Delaware, I say landed, this is a land tour, we're not flying anywhere, and we're actually hoteling it, we're not doing the uh, RV this time either, because a lot of the events are back to back to back to back, but um, we've had great turnout so far this spring tour, we've met a ton of really awesome chicken lovers, they've had great questions, we've had awesome answers, Uh, sold a lot of books, autographed a lot of books and magazines, Given away tons of prizes, lots of good food is provided at our events over the last three events. And then uh, tonight, we're looking forward to the event from 6 to 8 in Bridgeville, Delaware. So we've had uh, two events in Virginia. We've had one in Maryland. That was last night. And then tonight, we are in Delaware. Then we've got a long weekend to celebrate Easter, and then uh, we start back next Tuesday, and we have events, and uh, two or three events in Connecticut, actually, and then uh, over to New York, and then I think we wrap it up in Pennsylvania. Um, so, hey, looking uh, looking forward to the uh, rest of the events, but come on out. Getting great turnout this year. We love it, and spreading the chicken love from coast to coast. Today on my personal Facebook page, we uh, did a Facebook Live, I guess uh, you call it, and we went over the uh, Bay Bridge. I guess it goes from Maryland to Maryland, um, not being from this area and looking at the peninsula. 
Uh, I assume that it went from Maryland over to Delaware because once we cross the bridge, we have an event tonight in Delaware. But apparently it goes from Maryland to Maryland to the Bay Bridge. And we were researching that last night real quick, and we saw where it's supposedly very scary. There's a company that, if you're too scared, will drive you across this bridge. Um, that um, some semis have crashed over the bridge and fallen in, and the wind gets pretty bad. But um, it wasn't really too bad today, so thank goodness. But we made it across that bridge and got over here and got checked into the hotel okay, so we're looking forward to tonight's event. Got a great show lined up for you today. We've got uh, Dr. Maurice Pateski and a poultry veterinarian, and we're going to be discussing some... Um, different things about avian influenza and so it's going to be interesting i know we've got uh i guess a current outbreak right now kind of in the southeast and georgia was low path last i heard but maybe some high path in tennessee and, and northern alabama and so it's kind of reared its ugly head again this year here in the u.s so uh, we thought we'd talk a little bit about that and identification of that and testing and and trace back you know just different things like that and uh so we're looking forward to it so go ahead we've already gone through our first break for the show we'll break probably around uh 40 past the hour and um, take our second break of the radio show but until then we'll be uh, talking all about some things regarding avian influenza so get that pen and paper ready i'm going to go ahead and go to the phone lines and bring on uh, Dr. Maurice Pateski. Maurice, thank you very much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Great. Thanks for having me, Andy. It's good to be here. Yeah, thank you. Um, so I'm just going to kind of turn it over to you. Normally I have a in-depth uh, kind of a host chat uh, set up for this, but I'm not a veteran scientist or poultry nutritionist. So um, we, we do, as the national spokesperson, I do education on biosecurity and uh, some signs and symptoms of avian influenza, but this really is more up uh, your alley. So I'm just going to kind of turn it over to you, and you can share with us uh, your knowledge and, and the importance of this and uh, the topics we were going to discuss today and kind of get into. And uh, so I'll turn it over to you. If I have any questions or see any questions posted on our social media, I'll be sure to kind of uh, get those uh, to you so we can answer those on the air. But I'll turn it over to you, and you can work your magic. Okay, great. Thanks, Andy. Sounds like you're having a good trip. Um, yeah, so far, so good. Good. Well, um, hopefully next time you're in California, I'll get to, I'll get to hang out with you again. Um, <laughs> yeah, we'll have to that way. So I wanted to talk about, um, we were going to talk about avian inflow today, and um, it's a good time to talk about it. I think, I think that the, what I always like to What's always interesting to me about avian influenza is that it is seasonal for the most part in North America, and it's a it's a good chance for us to talk about uh, the disease and how it's transmitted. But it's also a good opportunity for us to kind of think about um, how we protect our birds. And um, I think one good aspect of that is that we should be protecting our birds year round, even though the influenza viruses are more seasonal. Um, they do persist year-round, uh, especially in, in, in more of the moderate climate. Um, so uh, it's good for us to think about preventing disease transmission year-round, uh, not just for influenza, but for a variety of other viruses and bacteria and parasites. But just to kind of mention why this is such an important thing. So as I'm sure most people recall, we had an unprecedented outbreak of avian, in, avian influenza in North America in 2014, 2015, 
And if people can kind of sort of remember, I know we all have, including myself, don't have the best memories, but over 50 million poultry had to be depopulated um, at over 200 commercial operations and over 20 backyard flocks in 15 states. And that resulted in a total economic impact of over $3.3 billion. So we've, for years and decades, uh, the United States um, has been very, very lucky in that we've never had anything like this. And we see it happen in Southeast Asia. We see it happen in Africa. We see it happen in Europe. And for whatever reason, it just didn't happen here. And then we got hit uh, particularly hard a couple years ago. And as you just mentioned to, uh, alluded to, Andy, we had a very recent outbreak that's uh, still ongoing um, in um, the southeast, southeastern United States, Georgia, Tennessee, and Alabama. Uh, we don't know the true economic impact of that yet, um, but that has affected uh, at least over 11 uh, broiler breeder farms. So these are the farms that are the, the moms and the dads, if you will, of the uh, chickens that, that you and I eat. It's very interesting that that's the case because those are the farms that are very biosecure. So it's very difficult to get on those farms. Um, a lot of the times you have to shower before you walk onto a farm like that because they want to make sure that you're not transmitting any diseases. Uh, such as avian influenza, um, onto those facilities. So that the virus got in there is, is interesting, to say the least. And I, I think it, it also tells us a very important point, that even the, the, the facilities that are, that are extremely biosecure, even they are susceptible to um, transmission of diseases via a variety of ways, either it's workers or it's waterfowl, rodents, whatever it be. Nothing is perfect, um, even though we um, those facilities are, are as close as you can get to, to having a, a very biosecure type of environment. Um, so the, the viruses, before, I, I really wanted to spend some time really talking about waterfowl and, and kind of how waterfowl movements um, can be predicted and, and how we can use that information to really um, kind of think about how the virus can be um, how, how our poultry are, are potentially exposed to the virus and, and talk a little about what mechanisms we have in the United States in order to, um, to test for the virus. Um, because if we, if we understand where the virus is, if we understand where waterfowl are, um, that's, that's a huge chunk of the problem um, with respect to avian influenza. And avian influenza just doesn't affect birds and chickens. Um, it can affect swine. It can affect uh, a variety of other livestock and domestic animals. And in some very rare situations, can affect humans. Um, so it is, it is a huge and consequ consequential disease that we just need to be aware of. And um, the, in my mind, you know, when we think about biosecurity, I, I think in our, in our mind, we think about, you know, kind of a, creating some type of fortress um, where our birds are. But the reality is we have to think a little more broadly um, and think about where are the waterfowl, where are the rodents outside of our coop. And in some situations, there's nothing we can do about that. If there's wetlands and ponds and things where uh, waterfowl are known to congregate, that's their habitat, and waterfowl are very important for other ecological reasons, um, we're in some ways, we're in a difficult situation then. Um, so I think it's important for us to, to, to be aware that, that biosecurity is not just on our farm. Biosecurity extends into the, into the region, into our neighborhoods, um, and sometimes we, can, we can't control that, and that's okay. We do the best we can, just like those broiler breeder facilities, um, but at the end of the day, we, we can only control what we can control. 
so when we think about the virus itself, um, there's a lot of different lingo that's used, and sometimes you hear the term high path and low path, and you hear these letters and numbers, and it can get a little confusing. Um, and, and the big picture kind of focus should be on, okay, we're dealing with influenza, and waterfowl are very unique in that all the different types of influenza, uh, of influenza A, can be carried by waterfowl. And when you hear the lingo, you hear an H term and an N term. That's just the way that scientists have come up to classify the virus. So if you hear H5N8, for example, well, the H5N8 just refers to the hemiglutinin, it's a protein that's on the surface of the virus, that's the fifth type of, that, that, that it's one type of hemiglutinin protein called H5. And the N refers to another protein that's on the surface, again, of the virus called neuraminidase. And there are 16 different H's and nine different N's. And if you do the math, that means there's 144 possible combinations. And where it gets confusing, and even for me it gets a little confusing, let's say you have H5N8. Well, you can have multiple H5N8. So you can have some H5N8s that are in China, and you can have H5N8s that are in North America, and they can be slightly different from each other. So within that classification, within that H and that N, um, you're going to have various subtypes of that virus. So that's something to be aware of and to, and to kind, of, um, kind of acknowledge. For example, the H7N3, I believe, that we're dealing with in the southeast right now, um, that virus is also present in China, um, and that virus in China is causing uh, disease in China um, in humans. But the same version, the same um, H7N3 that we have, or excuse me, H7N9, um, that we have in North America, it has the same letters associated with it, but it's a di slightly different type, and it does not cause human illness in North America. So that gets really confusing uh, for veterinarians, for human physicians, for uh, people in the, in the public. When they hear H7 and 9 and that's causing disease and, and mortality and death and sickness in China, it's completely different in North America, even though the letters are exactly the same because the genetics are just a little more different. Um, but it is something for us to be aware of, that these viruses can change um, and they can mutate, and that's just part of evolution and, and the way that these viruses uh, change over time. A lot of those changes are harmless, but some of those changes over time um, can result in disease in different species, including humans. And that's another reason that we should always be cautious uh, when we're working with animals. There are diseases that can go from animals to humans um, and vice versa. So now that we know just a little about the, the lingo that's used for these influenza viruses, the next thing I want to talk just about a little is, is waterfowl. So waterfowl are fascinating, um, and uh, they are, as, as many of your listeners I'm sure know, they are migratory. And um, the really, I think, amazing and beautiful thing about these birds is that they literally uh, can migrate tens of thousands of kilometers every single year. Um, on this quest for either warmth or food or a combination of the two. Um, that's a unique characteristic of waterfowl. The good part about that is they can, they can move thousands of miles, and that's part of their normal ecology and their, their kind of lifestyle, if you will. The bad part about that is that they can transmit diseases thousands of miles across continents. So it's something, um, for example, I live in California, and we have these flyways. So North America has four flyways, the Pacific Flyway, going from the left to the right, the west to the east, 
the Central Flyway, the Mississippi Flyway, and the Atlantic Flyway. And they're kind of like lanes on a highway. Um, like most people, most people stay in their lanes, but uh, obviously we have some people that do not stay in their lanes exactly. And when they don't stay in their lanes, that's ways that these viruses can kind of move around. So, for example, the Pacific Flyway interfaces with five other flyways. So now when these birds are congregating in feeding uh, locations or in breeding locations in the Arctic, uh, for example, in the, Atlantic, in the uh, Alaskan Arctic, um, in the summertime, in the springtime, excuse me, um, those birds can be exchanging viruses. And that's how we get these kind of reassortments and new versions of viruses. So if you just have the viruses in the Pacific Flyway, well, if those viruses in the Pacific Flyway, if those, vi if those birds in the Pacific Flyway interface with birds in the East Asian flyway that have different viruses, that's how we get the evolution and formation of new viruses. And then those birds migrate from that Arctic region back down into the Pacific Northwest, for example, um, and they can transmit that virus to um, waterfowl that are less migratory. So you have a lot of waterfowl, a lot of ducks, and interestingly enough, some of them are um, – are waterfowl that are, that are like the ones I described earlier, that are like snow geese that will move literally tens of thousands of kilometers. And some of them are uh, certain types of mallards that for, for genetic reasons have kind of evolved in a way to where they're much more regional and local. And they might be carrying viruses that are endemic in that region, that are common in that region. But when they interface with those snow geese um, that were just up in a few months ago, that were just up in the Arctic region, um, then they can transmit the, the virus to those uh, mallards, for example, or those pintail ducks, for example. Um, and then those pintail ducks then can transmit the disease um, to, among other things, poultry eventually. Um, there's not really a lot of understanding. If you talk to most commercial poultry farmers, they're like, we don't really see mallards and pintails and snow geese on our farms. So there's a lot of people, including our laboratory, that are trying to understand how are they transmitting that virus to commercial poultry? Is it rodents? Is it songbirds? Um, what are the, the mechanisms that, that are being, is it humans? Um, what are the mechanisms that are transmitting that virus? Since we know from surveys and from um, kind of anecdotal evidence, in addition to surveys, that really, those type of waterfowl you typically do not see on commercial poultry facilities and, and typically will not be um, biosecurity would, 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 would 99 out of 100 times prevent them from, from getting into those facilities. So it is a complicated ecology, um, and, the, and the waterfowl, their, their unique migratory behavior um, makes it so to where they can really transmit um, disease literally from one continent to another. Um, so it's an amazing process, but it's also a, um, like a a challenging issue to deal with because these birds are not just regional in many cases. They can, they can um, move across continents. So in general, the, the influenza viruses amplify during summer, during summer breeding. So the summer breeding is in the, in, in the northern latitudes. Um, but those viruses are present in the environment, um, in the overwintering environment. So as birds migrate from breeding sites, to lower latitudes, they become involved in the transmission network um, and in transmission of the virus uh, from different species of waterfowl uh, to other species of waterfowl and most likely um, non 
uh, waterfowl and non-birds, um, including uh, rodents, for example. So um, it's important to kind of appreciate that the virus is, while it is sensitive to UV light, um, under the right conditions, wetlands, for example, flooded rice fields, um, which are basically um, have been co-opted as wetlands. We have a lot of flooded rice in the Central Valley of California. We have a lot of commercial poultry in the Central Valley of California. That interface is a very dangerous and risky interface. There are other parts of the uh, Mid-Atlantic um, and areas around Tennessee, for example, um, that also have a lot of wetlands. And that habitat, uh, virus cannot only persist there, but um, new viruses can potentially evolve there as different types of waterfowl interface with each other. So just something to think about when you're thinking about how um, this kind of interaction um, can kind of persist and, and kind of go from there. Um, yeah, it explains a lot. Before I move on to kind of uh, the no, surveys. No, that explained a lot. Yeah, cleared some things up. Thank you. Yeah, sure. Um, so when we think about surveillance, there's, you know, kind of three main kind of flavors of surveillance or genres of surveillance. There's wildlife surveillance. Um, that's probably the most limited one at this point. Um, so, you know, we just talked about we know that the waterfowl is the primary reservoir of the virus, but we don't do a ton of testing for uh, the virus. Um, there are recommendations. We just, um, or not we, but the USDA, uh, the USGS, the US Geological Service, and the US Fish and Wildlife, among other organizations, um, just published in 2016 a national surveillance plan, which is basically recommended surveillance. Um, and they came up with um, some recommendations on how uh, the state and federal government should be surveilling wildlife for the different types of influenza. Um, and among other things, they want to focus on surveillance in uh, live wild birds, which we don't do a lot of at this point. Um, the main focus at this point is, is surveillance of these um, hunter-killed birds. So uh, anyone that uh, hunts birds, for example, usually they have to go through some kind of check station on the way out with their dead birds. Um, and uh, organizations like the USGS and Wildlife will swab those birds, send those swabs to a diagnostic laboratory in order to get some idea about what viruses are um, persisting in the environment. Um, there's problems with that. Um, that's a lot of what we would call as an epidemiologist convenience sampling. Um, so you're only getting samples from birds that were killed, so you can make all kinds of arguments about whether that is a, um, <coughs> excuse me, whether that is a true representation of uh, the population. Um, remember, we're dealing with millions of birds, so when we're only doing this literally maybe a couple hundred times in each state, is that really a representative sample? Probably not, but in general, um, if you look at the data, the different flyways and what birds are being test, tested over the last several years, you're finding that the prevalence, the amount of influenza that we have in the birds that are tested, anywhere between 1% and sometimes up to 25%. Now, the majority, the vast majority of those positive birds from those hunter-killed stations are of low-path avian influenza. So the low-path ones are still serious. They can still cause uh, sickness in poultry. They cause a loss in egg production, and they can cause some mortality, um, but they do not cause um, you know, the significant high mortality that the highly pathogenic avian influenza can cause. Um, 
which brings up the point um, with the H7N9 outbreak that's occurring in the southeast. This is really complicated because some of the H7N9 are apparently highly pathogenic, and some of them are low pathogenic. Now, H7 is a unique um, subtype of the virus in that, without getting too far into the weeds, the H5 and H7 subtypes of the virus, those two subtypes can mutate from low path to high path. So when we do have an outbreak of the virus, it's really important to realize that even if it's low path, if it's an H5 or H7, the science um, and policy dictates that we depopulate all birds that are affected with H5 and H7, even if it's low path, because of the potential to a highly pathogenic parent. Um, so um, the wildlife surveillance, in my opinion, is, is extremely important, but we, we do it at a limited level. Like I said, we don't do surveillance in, wild, in live wild birds, even though it's recommended. Um, but we don't do very much of that. The majority is at these hunter killed stations. Um, and we don't really do any environmental testing. So a little earlier I explained that we look for the virus in uh, wetlands, and there's been some nice scientific research on how you can isolate the virus from the sediment in wetlands, for example. Um, and that's a nice way potentially to look at all the different viruses that are there so you can kind of understand when the waterfowl migrate into an area what viruses they might be exposing themselves to. We just don't do that um, at a level, at a surveillance level yet. We do it more at a scientific research kind of level, um, which is important, but it's not really part of our normal um, approach toward understanding risk. Because you can imagine, if we know where the waterfowl are, and that changes, not just because they're migratory, but that changes because wetlands are not always permanent. We have California, for example, again, where I'm from, we had a, an amazing, um, almost too much rain this winter. Um, so there is a lot of ponding going on, and that ponding creates habitat for waterfowl in areas where that would have not existed six months ago. And six months from now, when we enter our dry season, uh, or less than that, when we enter our dry season, we won't have, uh, that ponding won't exist anymore. So understanding that, that, that transient nature of their habitat, you know, waterfowl like water, um, understanding that is, is not a trivial thing to understand. And there's some I think, pretty clever uh, approaches that are, people are starting to explore using remote sensing, uh, land satellite imagery, radio telemetry, um, you know, the, the issue that we, we, in our lab we work on a lot with our collaborator at the University of Delaware, Jeff Bueller. Um, we do a lot of stuff with radar biology. Um, so there are some, I think, better ways as we move forward, less expensive ways and more robust ways to understand where waterfowl are um, and then to have a more um, targeted uh, surveillance mechanism from there. But the wildlife testing is, is limited right now. The, 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 I think the real area where we do better is in commercial poultry, and that's where the National Poultry Improvement Program comes in. And there are very strict rules um, for even influenza testing um, of flocks before any of those flocks can be um, um, transmitted or not transmitted, excuse me, before any, any birds can be um, sent across state lines. Um, there, there are a lot of specific rules on birds before they go to processing on, on, on testing. Now, in a general sense, the only way you can be 100% sure of, of testing 
of, of that a flock is avian influenza free is if you test every bird in that flock. Um, we obviously don't do that. If you have a flock of 10,000 birds in a barn, um, you just can't do that, obviously. Um, you can only uh, test a limited number, and that's where you know, epidemiologists like myself can come up with recommendations. Well, if you have 10,000 birds and you want to be 99.9% .9 confident that the virus is not there, this is how many birds you would have to test. And that's, that's you know, a, a more practical and realistic way to do that, and that's kind of what NPIP um, has been able to um, develop. And to their credit, to the commercial poultry industry's credit, uh, the NPIP program has an adoption rate, you know, close to 100% as you're going to get, and it's a voluntary program. It's a really amazing resource. Um, I think other parts of the world um, eventually will adopt similar um, programs, but it's, it's challenging to get that, that kind of cooperation. The other thing that we really have going for us in the United States is that we have indemnification, which is just a fancy way of saying commercial poultry producers will get um, paid back, um, maybe not a dollar for a dollar, but close to that um, for when um, an outbreak does happen. So it's in their best interest um, financially and um, otherwise to report um, sick birds. And when they report those sick birds, um, you've got these amazing resources that really can come in and uh, help with depopulation, um, help with cleaning and disinfection, give recommendations on all a whole sort of things um, in order to get that, that farmer back on, online at every level. The only thing you need, and um, this is a good opportunity to mention this, is you need to have an avian influenza response plan. So if you want to be indemnified, all you have to do is you have to have a state, and I'm imagining most states, if not all states, to have an avian influenza response plan. That's the state department of food and agriculture's responsibility. And then the other thing you need is the individual farm has to have a response plan. So um, it's obviously better to have a response plan before an event happens than after it happens, um, because after it happens, it's everyone panicking, and it's really hard to figure out what you're going to do. And uh, one of the good things about recent outbreaks is that it makes everyone kind of recheck their response plan and make sure that it's, it's sound and appropriate and reasonable. Um, so the MPIP program is a, is, a, is a great program. The program is perfect. Um, you know, you can argue about how many samples are taken and, and when they're taken and, and gaps in that program, and, and I can do that. Um, you know, scientists love doing that. But uh, at the end of the day, just <laughs> having that instruction letter is really important. <laughs> It is fun to do that. I have to admit, especially when it's not your uh, your work with you. Hey, I've got a question for you, and this may be jumping the gun a little bit about about spread. We were talking about this last night uh, directly with some folks that that attended my event about the avian influenza and the spread. And I, you know, I, I often um, talk about scenarios where the wild uh, the waterfowl will, will land in a field to rest and maybe eat. And, of course, I know they poop a lot as they're taking off. Uh, and, of course, after they've landed, and they take off and they fly on their way. <laughs> and then scenarios where rodents could walk through that field and pick that up uh, on their feet and then walk over to the farm or your coop and walk in your coop to try to get some free uh, laying pellets. And we talked about spread that way. We talked about spread via dust um, and, and other things and other vectors that can spread this from, you know, how does it get from this field or from that, that wild uh, waterfowl to my chicken coop or to that farm. 
And so we, I try to offer sometimes different scenarios of how that can happen. <laughs> and one that was offered, we talked about last night, and my question for you is this. Um, I know that primarily carried by, carried by the waterfowl, they don't get sick with it, but they would be carrying or carriers of this disease. Um, and But, of course, the chickens can get sick, obviously, from low path and high path. But if, I, let's say, another bird, because last night in every class when we were talking about biosecurity, we talked about the disease that wild birds can bring in. If you have wild bird feeders and bird baths in your backyard and the fact that they will fly into that bird feeder and they'll spill food down off of it, and, of course, while they're up there eating, they'll poop off of that. And so at the bottom of that wild bird feeder you have in your backyard, there's lots of wonderful bird feed that your chickens would be attracted to, and, of course, wild bird poop. <laughs> Pardon me. And so my question is, if um, my scenario would be, here's this field or a pond in the area where some infected birds landed, um, and then maybe another bird, just just not a waterfowl, a robin or a blue jay or, or any other type of, I guess, backyard wild bird. Uh, lands there, drinks out of the same pond, or walks through the waste of those. They can come. Now, we'll, we'll, do we do other wild birds succumb to this other than just fowl like chickens? And but but I guess just because of the contact, they can then this blue jay could fly into your backyard, and we have that scenario where they're eating the bird feeder, they're bathing in the bird bath, and then your chicken hops up on the bird bath, drinks from that water and gets infected that way. Um, is that scenario, I guess my question is, these other wild birds, can they carry it and succumb to this avian influenza as well? Um, or, is, or is it more of a um, logical scenario that they, they would transport it to our backyard via the fecal matter and, and the, the feet and walking through that uh, um, as far as a way to infect our chickens in that scenario. So that's kind of a loaded question there, but it came up last night, and I said, well, I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Pateski when he comes on that kind of scenario, whether that blue jay can get AI and die from it, um, are they just the chances of them just transferring it via walking in, uh, through the feces of the wild waterfowl and bring it to your backyard? Yep, that's a great question, Andy, um, and it's um, kind of the ecology of the virus. It, it, the, the short answer is, is we don't know. I can give you my philosophical and kind of scientific mm -hmm. explanation of that. So philosophically, I am a grouper, not a splitter. So in my mind, um, the generality of birds being exposed and um, susceptible and infected with uh, a virus makes sense to me, uh, makes sense to a lot of people. Uh, just because they're not waterfowl doesn't mean that they can't get infected and have an immune response and shed the virus for a week or two in their poop, um, like waterfowl do. Um, if you look at the scientific literature, there are different arguments there. So one is, like as you suggested, at the minimum, if you have songbirds, let's say sparrows, for example, um, if you have tree sparrows, so tree sparrows hang out in the same habitat that waterfowl do. So at the minimum, a tree sparrow is going to mechanically have the potential to spread the virus. So mm -hmm. if they hang out in the same habitat, if they get it on their feet, for example, because they're, you know, pooping in these wetlands, they get up on there, they go flying and end up in your backyard on a bird feeder, absolutely. No one, I don't think anyone would argue that. 
where the argument comes in is, okay, what about if those birds get exposed to the virus, do they then get infected with it? Still don't produce any clinical signs of disease, but they, do they get infected and shed the virus then and amplify the virus and shed it then in a new environment? That's where we're not so sure. So working with things like sparrows and blue jays and any bird that makes biological sense to, to, to test that is not trivial. Getting all the permitting for, for trapping those birds is not trivial. Our lab, um, not to talk too much about our, our work, but we are actually um, exploring that option. We actually have some old sera samples, so basically the, um, the, the, the part of the blood that contains antibodies the five infections, we have literally thousands of songbird sera uh, samples. And over the next several months, we'll learn to see if any of those sera from birds that are in habitat that were close to waterfowl, we're going to explore if any of those sera have antibodies against avian influenza to try to answer that question. It's been answered a little before. Um, if you look at the literature, not a lot. Most people who focus on avian influenza ecology really focus on waterfowl, and they don't focus on, which I think for you and I is probably just as important, if not the most important question, are these songbirds, like sparrows, for example, are they, because you see a lot of sparrows in barns, um, are they one of the transmitters, either mechanically or um, because they get infected and they shed it in their feces, are they one of the kind of bridge species that are bringing the virus um, to commercial and backyard domestic poultry. So it's a great question. Um, it, it's a complicated question to answer. Getting blood from those birds is not trivial. Getting the permitting from those birds, while easier than waterfowl, because waterfowl are, are protected, um, getting blood from those birds is, 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 and, and the permitting is, is, is challenging. But it's a great question, and it's something we're actually actively looking into and probably should have a some preliminary results. We have a master's student who will be working on that over the over the next year. So, um, in a perfect world, we'll have some preliminary results in the next year. So, awesome. I've got another question, but I'm also going to take a commercial break. I'll let you know what the question is going to be, so you can gather your thoughts. You've answered this question before on past shows when we've talked about AI, but I'd like to cover it again in this show because this one, you know, more recent. And then, of course, uh, when people look at the archive. Um, they may not have listened to the one before. We always have new listeners that come on board. So uh, I'll ask kind of this question, uh, and then we'll go to commercial break, and then we'll come back and um, and then continue. And I'll let you an an answer it. So I'm kind of getting ready here for the commercial break. But um, this is probably one of the most popular questions we get during an outbreak, um, other than I guess number one would be how, do I, how can I protect my backyard flock if I live in this area. Uh, actually, this came another another question, so we'll, we'll do two when we come back from break if we have time. One would be I often get folks, mainly when they live near an outbreak, they'll have a question, should I go ahead and get my birds vaccinated for this? And I know that's kind of a loaded question as well, but that, that's one of the more popular ones. I notice, again, when they live in an area near an outbreak, should, should, should I go ahead and consider vaccination uh, since this is so near me? But the, but the main question I wanted to ask, that one just popped into my head, is, is this one. And this is probably the most popular, regardless of you're near an outbreak or not, that we get uh, during an outbreak. And that is <clears throat> um, when it comes to depopulation. 
and well, the, the word their question like, why do they just automatically kill all the birds? And we get that because because the the vast spread um, and the massive of death. Um, and but they 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 don't have the science background. They they're, they're question that because they think, well, would if we did nothing other than maybe try to contain it somehow um, to this one house, um, and we let the disease play itself out. Um, we know that maybe, who knows, maybe all the birds will die, but um, they did populate them all anyway. But maybe 10% would live. Maybe some would get through it um, and, and survive it. And then we learn from those birds. We take those birds. We try to duplicate them. We maybe breed them, see why, um, and try to develop, because it's a big term, you know, um, uh, what do you call it? Immunity to bird flu, and they they just they they their questions. They feel like, well, never going to be immune to it if we can't figure it out, and then take these birds, let the birds survive through it, see what why this bird did, why that bird didn't. So I'm kind of just kind of stretching this. Not, not really a simple question here. Here it is with a question mark, but um, I'm trying to give you all these in this uh, description of the way they answer or ask the question every time there's an outbreak. Um, well, you know, immunity and will some survive? Let's take them. Let's find out why. Why are they immune? And then let's breed that bird so we can wipe this out once and for all. So that's kind of my question, two questions for you when we come back after break. Again, one, uh, should, I, should I vaccinate if there's even one available, a uh, good or bad idea, uh, whether I'm near the outbreak or not? And then two, um, um, instead of depopulating them all, let the disease take its course, take the survivals, and, and, and learn from them and study from them and try to get maybe uh, some immunity done uh, to this bad disease. So uh, there you have it. We're going to go to commercial break. When we come back, uh, we'll continue with um, uh, poultry veterinarian Dr. Maurice Pateski, and those are two questions just because they're so common. I see them all the time on social media that we'll address when we get back, and then we'll have him also continue with our education. So stay with us, folks. Do you provide a heat source for your backyard chickens in the winter? In most cases, it's not necessary. But if you choose to provide a heat source for your backyard chickens, it's imperative to use a safe and effective heat source, and the only one I recommend is the Sweeter Heater. The Sweeter Heater is a safe, completely sealed, washable, non-breakable, energy-efficient, long-lasting and reliable specific area heater that comes with a three-year warranty. Ditch the dangerous heat lamp this season and invest in the only heater I recommend, the Sweeter Heater. Purchase the Sweeter Heater online at SweeterHeater.com. That's SweeterHeater.com. Tasty Grubs by Tasty Worms Nutrition are the original dried black soldier fly larvae made right here in the USA. Tasty Grubs are high in protein and calcium, vital nutrients for laying hens. Customers have reported an increase in shell quality, egg taste, and a reduction in molting time. For a limited time, get a bag of Tasty Grubs 100% free. Simply enter tastyworms.com forward slash whisper into your web browser and add one to your cart today. Save 10% on all other products such as dried mealworms by entering the coupon code whisper at checkout. That's tastyworms.com forward slash whisper. 
Since 1921, Stromberg's has been a family-owned and operated business providing quality poultry and poultry supplies to their customers. Today, the Stromberg's family offers over 200 different breeds of poultry, including chickens, waterfowl, and game birds. They also offer poultry supplies for both the beginner and experienced poultry keeper. Stromberg should be on the top of your list when it's time to order your new day-old baby chicks and poultry supplies. Order online today at strombergschickens.com. That's strombergschickens.com. Hey, it's the Chicken Whisperer. If you're in the market for a new incubator, then look no further than GQF. They have a great selection of tabletop and cabinet-style incubators at prices you can afford. I love my GQF Genesis Model 1588. It has a large picture window and an automatic thermostat, which makes for a better hatch every time. Go pick out your new incubator at GQFradio.com. That's GQFradio.com. Ideal Poultry has been a family-owned and operated business since 1937. Their business is built on customer service and quality poultry. From rare white and brown egg layers to broilers, ducks, turkeys, and bantams, Ideal Poultry is the largest supplier of backyard poultry in the United States, shipping close to 5 million chicks annually. Visit them online at IdealPoultry.com. That's IdealPoultry.com. From our family to yours, feed your chickens the way nature intended. Pure, wholesome goodness. Kalmbach Feeds. Visit our website at kalmbachfeeds.com. That's K-A-L-M-B-A-C-H-Feeds.com. Or order today on Amazon.com. Kalmbach Feeds is a proud sponsor of the Chicken Whisperer. Alrighty, thank you very much for staying with us today on Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer, brought to you by our good friends over at Kalmbach Feeds, who's sponsoring my Spring 2017 tour. We're on right now. I have an event tonight in Bridgeville, Delaware. Hope you can make it. It's going to be an awesome event, and um, snacks, and drinks, and everybody gets uh, a biosecurity counter from USDA, and a huge, a really nice spiral-bound, uh, well-put-together um, educational booklet on biosecurity. They get a copy of Chicken Whisperer magazine. They'll get some handouts from Kalmbach Feeds. It's going to be awesome. And then I'll yap about backyard poultry for about an hour and a half. Then we'll do a book signing, questions, answers, pictures, autographs, all that stuff. It's going to be fun tonight. I hope I see you there. Uh, today, again, we're talking with uh, Dr. Maurice Bateski, and we're talking a little bit about avian influenza. And the two questions I ask kind of before break are two that I see commonly asked on social media whenever there's an outbreak. Uh, oh, this is near me. Should I go ahead? Vaccination. And then two, um, instead of depopulating, why don't we let the disease take its course? We understand high mortality, but um, maybe a few would survive and we can figure out why. And maybe those birds are super strong. We breed from them and try to maybe, you know, breed this out um, or get some birds that are immune. So back over to the phone lines with our good friend, Dr. Pateski, and I will let you kind of cover those two questions. Maybe the shortest one will be the vaccination question. We can start with that and then work with the uh, um, kind of the developing an immune uh, to the disease. 
Yeah, thanks, Andy. So uh, the vaccine, the short answer for the shortest question is you can't even get it if you wanted it. Um, Mm -hmm. The slightly longer answer to that question is, um, as we talked about a little earlier, there are 144 different uh, possible combinations of the H and N um, proteins that are on the surface of the virus. So when you say, I'm going to vaccinate my birds against avian influenza, then the next question that comes up is like, okay, which <laughs> vaccine are you going to use? Because um, it's, it doesn't work against every hun- all, all 144 combinations, unfortunately. Um, it wouldn't and be then like every question, year. It, it would be Sorry, like every year. This, I guess the CDC every year, my understanding would be like, um, let's just try to uh, educationally, uh, give it an educational guess of which uh, flu is going to be a, um, a problem this year for humans, and this is the flu shot that we'll make. This is the, you know, that, that type of thing, uh, I'm guessing. So now, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, however, um, and that year just after the big year, 14, 15, um, of the big outbreak here in the U.S., um, we, we saw a lot of media, um, mainstream media, talking about, and it was, seemed like every other Google alert that I would get after that was uh, USDA stockpiling avian, avian influenza vaccine. Is there is that Would that be just a base that then they can uh, add to the particular strains to, to make it faster to... Um, again, you can tell I'm no scientist, um, but, but I know that after you know we, we we saw that in the news media so much, we're stockpiling you know four million doses of this um, uh, vaccine. Is is that are, are all those still around, or is that? I, I know there has to be also reading through that very specific guidelines to even give that. But I do remember so much in the news media about the vaccine and the stockpiling of these vaccines for AI a couple of years ago. Um, can you tell us uh, again a little bit about that? Is that just a base that, that we have to figure out what strains to put in there, but we have it readily available if we need it, or am I, am I dreaming that? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that, that you didn't dream at all. You're absolutely right, and that's a good, that's a good um, I think, um, example that you gave as far as the human vaccine um, and how it changes every year. Um, same thing with... Um, for the most part, with these vaccine, with these viruses. So, uh, 2014, 2015, we were dealing with H5N8 and H5N2. So they were stockpiling vaccine um, that did work um, in kind of laboratory settings against that H5N8 um, virus. Now we're dealing with H7N9 in the southeast of Tennessee, Alabama, yeah. and uh, Georgia. Uh, there are no guarantees that that one vaccine works uh, against that um, subtype, and I'm not even sure what research has been done. So when you compile all that virus, that was an anticipation of, of let's say, it came back next year. It came back in, okay. instead of 2014, 2015, it came back in 2015, 2016. You know, people would have been criticized if we didn't plan ahead or the USDA didn't plan ahead <laughs> by, by starting to, right. to compile vaccines. Um, but you're right, that vaccine now is... is um, would be ineffective, um, most likely, against other subtypes of the virus, um, and there might be some, you know, small uh, projects that are kind of exploring that 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 approach. The problem with the other the other problem with the vaccine is is more of an economic problem. Um, so once you start vaccinating, um, there are very strict restrictions on global trade of poultry products. 
Um, and the United States is a net exporter of poultry. Um, so that's a problem. Sorry, go on. No, I, I, when you said that, I, I mumbled to my breath. I said, I remember that. I remember you saying that, that there would be restrictions on exports of our of food, uh, obviously poultry, to other countries. They would be, oh, if you're vaccinating for this, then we're banning it. We're banning the import of your chicken uh, while this is going on. Or if you think it's important enough to vac- have you know, vaccine your chicks, uh, chickens, then, then we don't. <laughs> uh, we're kind of a little wary of that. We're not going to take any of your chicken, my understanding. And, and the reason that's so is because the vaccine, uh, the virus can still amplify um, in vaccinated birds. Um, so what you've done now is you've almost created a, um, a kind of a Trojan horse. You have a, a healthy bird or what looks to be a healthy bird that is shedding virus um, potentially. Now the worst possible situation would be now those birds are being spread to other flocks or they're being um, uh, transported across state lines to different processing plants. Um, and they're shedding virus now um, all over the region um, because of biosecurity and just because of the reality of how production occurs. Um, so in that situation, the, the reason, and this is probably the, the, the biggest reason of all, we don't like that in North America, most developed countries don't like the vaccine, is because you run the risk of causing a small outbreak to become a pandemic or a much larger outbreak that would affect um, the U.S., the entire U.S. poultry industry, turkeys, layers, and broilers, instead of keeping it into a region. Um, and this kind of bleeds into the next question. Um, instead of keeping it kind of regionally or locally, um, there is, most people would argue, and I would agree, that there is value in the depopulation effort. The reason you depopulate um, from the kind of 10,000-foot know, view is that dead birds do not amplify virus. Only live birds amplify virus. So in the 2014-2015 outbreak, one of the explanations for why the virus spread so rapidly in the Midwest is because the flocks that were affected didn't depopulate quickly enough because there were so many birds and, and we didn't have a very, we just weren't ready yet. We weren't, we weren't practiced enough to do it really quickly. So those birds became, those commercial birds basically became a reservoir. And when they became a reservoir for virus and workers and other birds and other methods, including aerosols potentially um, became a, those farms became basically a nidus of virus for the region. Um, so the, the, I've heard the argument um, from all kinds of people, scientists, non-scientists, that, you know, if we just let the virus take its course, then we could start selecting for strains of birds that are disease resistant. There's, 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 there's science to that. That's a legitimate argument. But I think most people, including myself, would argue that you only really want to do that in a controlled fashion for two reasons. One reason is poultry uh, is aside from dairy milk, is the least expensive protein animal protein um, in the United States. We produce over 8 billion broilers a year. We have over 300 million layers um, in, 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 our, in our, I guess, poultry por- portfolio. It is really important to protect that resource uh, from a food security perspective. Um, if we just let a virus just play itself out and see what happens, 
Um, in that type of experimental setting, that would be, in my mind, from a food security perspective, would be potentially devastating, not just to the U.S., but to the places that we export poultry um, products to and to the farmers that are producing um, that product. So, as you described so, that, uh, as you described that scenario, um, can, uh, in this, you know, we just don't want to just do it, but maybe in, in, in a controlled environment and because there's a you warrant the science of that scenario, so I'm envisioning, you know, and a top secret um, like like uh, Roswell, but it would be where we have this enclosed huge metal belt. I mean, that's it. No one's around for hundreds of miles. Is security, and and we infect this these birds with avian influenza, and then we see who survives. So uh, again, uh, I guess that would you know. I just had that funny picture when you were talking about that of, of something like Roswell, yet for <laughs> um, studying avian influenza. Again, because, uh, it makes sense. The, the, the protein source and, and the chicken that we eat here, here in America, I totally get that. You were going to add one more thing before I interrupted you. And then I've got one last question we can kind of wrap up with regarding biosecurity. Yeah, so the only, the only other thing I would add on to what you're saying, you, you, you are right. Some of those experiments are done in very secure locations. Um, but some of them are done, actually, um, in other parts of the world. So in Africa, um, our, um, the USAID, um, International Aid and Development, which is part of the Department of State, um, there are projects related to this Feed the Futures um, uh, kind of goal, which is basically addressing food security issues in uh, other parts of the world. And what they are trying to do, they are trying to find village poultry, these kind of kind of backyard chickens in, in parts of Africa where exotic Newcastle disease, for example, is endemic. And they're trying to find village poultry that are completely, um, that are relatively immune to um, exotic Newcastle disease. The same plays out, the same scenario could certainly play out for avian influenza where you would um, identify um, poultry that have uh, disease resistance naturally to avian influenza or disease resistance naturally um, to exotic Newcastle disease. Um, and the, the one caveat I would say is when people say, yep, we should, we, should, we should be exploring this scenario, the only caveat I would say is that nothing is 100%. So the idea that we're going to find some chicken or line of chickens that is 100% immune to disease and will not have a drop in egg production and everything will be perfect is just does not is not is not true from a biological sense. We will take a hit, but the idea is to find strains and breeds of chicken that are productive that can be more resistant um, to these viruses, to these devastating viruses. So I, I kind of have a – we need to approach this from a kind of a global perspective as far as all the approaches we take, whether it's surveillance, whether it's genetics, whether it's depopulation. We have to have a practical kind of approach to address the people that need that protein now, and then you know that's why we do research is to address the long-term um, kind of vision that that I think those people are are keen to um, to kind of explore. One one last question regarding biosecurity, and um, on several occasions over the years, uh, when Peter Brown he lives over here, uh, he lives in Maryland, but over here on the kind of the Delmarva Peninsula, and there's a lot of I mean, this is huge poultry as well. Not quite like my home state of Georgia, but still, still big, big name. You know, poultry producers, as you know, and um, 
on on probably countless times I've heard him say when we've talked about biosecurity and some of the big boys, which again we all talk about them having bumped up biosecurity, or we, we hope they are. And everybody gets lax, you know. We understand that we're humans, um, but he then he talks about just the poultry trucks just riding up and down the highway and the feathers. And so it was interesting today, kind of deja vu. Uh, we we come over from Maryland, we're over here on the peninsula, we're going north up towards Bridgeford, where we're at now in Delaware, and we see all the name brands of the, because it's so big here, of course, as well, poultry. And what, what, lo and behold, what do me and my wife and kids get behind? A truck full of chickens. <laughs> and, and so it was kind of like, oh, okay. And um, which we're not, we're totally used to that being from Georgia, but um, it just reminded me of him being here. And, and, and so immediately we're going down the highway, and I'm, 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 all this is processing in my head from people that point to that and complain about that. And then I, of course, to, to destroy their theory because I'm like, look, um, we're raising chickens like this because you want 99 cent nuggets at Wendy's. Um, so, so we go down that road. But, I, but I'm looking at feathers fly everywhere, dirt mm. flying everywhere. It, it reminds me of a, of a study that was done a few years back with they, they drove behind one of these trucks in a convertible with a couple of soda cans in the cup holders and then swapped those and found all this stuff, obviously the chicken truck. And, and I'm looking at this going, well, there's biosecurity out the window. You know, and, and I, don't, I, don't, I can't say that. I can't say that for sure because I'm, I'm not a scientist. I've never, you know, researched that. So um, we, we do all this biosecurity. We know that it can travel via dust, and a lot of things can travel via dust. But I'm behind this chicken truck waiting to pass it as fast as I can. I have my re- no-return air vent on, so I'm not, it's not coming through my, my grill and then into my car. Um, but, but at the same time, what, what say you in that scenario, because we're doing all this pile security and then we get these chickens on this truck and go 70 miles an hour down the highway and feathers and dirt and poops flying everywhere down there and the wind picks it up. Is that, as, <laughs> is, do, do, am I right to look at that like, well, there goes our biosecurity security out the window? Or is that, has studies been done that you know of that that's, in the scheme of things, probably not a big deal. But at the same time, you, you preach this and, I, and I, you know, I'm, I, w- I may be faced with that tonight in class. We talk about biosecurity, and someone says, who's here? Well, oh, my gosh, just look at the chicken trucks riding down the road, spreader and all this stuff around. What, so, so what say you help, help me with that so if I'm approached with that scenario, I can respond appropriately? <laughs> no, you're, you're, Andy, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, that aerosols can spread virus. Um, there are arguments about how far. Um, and depends on particle size and how fast the truck's going and the wind conditions and all those types of things. But um, it is understood and recognized that, um, you know, when you do have an out the roads, um, we've had this situation come up in California, that the roads that are used to transport sick birds, the trucks need to take um, much more circuitous routes to stay away from unaffected farms. Um, Because especially in some of these rural areas, um, there is, you know, maybe one main artery, one main highway, and then a small, a lot of smaller roads. So it can be very challenging to uh, take roads that are uh, less frequently traveled. Now, we, we've done stuff, and other people have done the same things, where they look at wind patterns also, um, and they can kind of interpolate this fancy word for just kind of fill in the line, fill, uh, connect, try to, to try to connect the dots between wind patterns and virus during outbreaks. Um, and there's some sound science behind that. It, it's completely legitimate. You're... you're you're, you're a natural scientist, Andy. That's a, a reasonable thing to 
to focus on um, that, that probably doesn't get the attention it deserves, um, to be perfectly honest. But at the end of the day, we all go back, and it all goes back to what you've said many a times, and even in this program when we started, there is no absolute or there is no 100% guarantee. Um, we can try the best biosecurity plan possible, even in our backyards. And, you know, whether it's someone saying, I've tried for years, I cannot stop the sparrows from flying in, into my coop or into my run or whatever. So we do what we can do. That's, that's life. That, that, you know, we do what we, yep. what, what we can do, and that's all we can do. And then we did the chips will fall where they may, I guess, is the old saying. So yep. um, in, the, in, the in birth and life. In birds and life, sorry to interrupt, but in birds and life, um, you know, my philosophy is um, don't make perfect the enemy of good. Good is better than bad. It's not as good as perfect, but we're, we're never going to get perfect. And you, we shouldn't use that as an excuse to not do, uh, you know, the best we can do. So it's kind of like, well, maybe I won't take my kids to the playground because it is flu season. <laughs> maybe I won't go to that indoor bouncy because there's a stomach bug going around. We just do what we can. So. Yeah. Um, anything that you have right in front of you on your notes uh, that you're like, ooh, we didn't cover that, or ooh, I really wanted to cover this, or I think this is important before we let you go, my friend. No, I mean, the only other thing I just wanted to mention is is when you do look at some of the surveillance, different states will have uh, different surveillance approaches beyond what we talked about. So some surveillance will happen at live bird markets, um, depending on the state. Some surveillance will happen at feed stores. Um, some surveillance will happen at targeted backyard facilities that are um, you know, close to uh, waterfowl and shorebirds, for example. Um, so there's, there's a whole, it just depends where you are. There's surveillance done where, everywhere, but it just depends where you are on the level of surveillance. Um, and I think it's important that we understand that uh, these diagnostic labs that are um, pockmarked throughout the United States that are in most uh, states, um, those, surveillance, those diagnostic labs are a resource for us. Um, if we have sick birds, we should um, highly, I highly recommend submitting sick and or dead birds to a diagnostic lab. Um, I think mm -hmm. in my mind, it's our responsibility um, when we have sick birds um, to, to submit the birds because what we want to do is, worst case scenario, we want to protect our neighbor's birds and our, the birds in our region and things like that. The quicker that you identify a disease, especially a catastrophic disease, like even influenza or got Newcastle disease, um, the better it is uh, for, for our neighbors um, and for the region and for our economy and, and, and so on and so forth. So 99 out of 100 times we're just dealing with marriage disease or coccidiosis or something like that, and those are our are, are, are little – those are normal diseases. Um, nothing is going to happen. But on the one-off chance that we do have something like that, the quicker we submit those birds uh, to the diagnostic lab, the better it is for everybody. Exactly. So, you know, protecting your neighbor's birds and taking one for the team, <laughs> basically. You yeah. know, you got your neighbor's birds. You know what happened to them. And yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show and talking about this, educating us, uh, myself, all the listeners. And um, again, I like it because then I can uh, get questions to you that I see a lot of times on social media or, or these these sometimes challenging questions like, okay, what about this? Or come on now, what about that? And you're right there with some scientific uh, uh, answers for us, which is uh, always important here in the Chicken Whisper brand. So thank you very much for uh, all you do for us, writing for the magazine and the submissions for the new book next year and coming on the show, spreading the chicken love, but accurate uh, science-based, fact-based, study-based information. We thank you very much, Doc, and we'll see you next month.
Great. Thanks, Andy. Good, have, good, uh, good, good chatting with you. Yes, you too. Thank you so much. And that's going to wrap up another episode of Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisper brought to you by Combach Foods. Always great to have Dr. Maurice Patetsky on the show. And let me see what we got. I'm trying to look at the calendar to see what we've got uh, next week. Um, next week, the 20th, it looks like we have poultry scientist Dr. Bridget McRae that will be here. Mm-hmm. And then the 27th, we may have Peter Brown, also known as the Chicken Doctor, uh, be joining us on the 27th. Again, depending on our travel schedule and where we're at, if we can get to the next hotel in time to broadcast live, uh, we will definitely uh, broadcast as much as we can. Because we know I have tons of listeners that depend on the show to care for the health of their backyard flocks. Um, until then, have a great one. Hope to see you tonight in Bridgeville. God bless everybody. Uh-huh.